Roxo Media House. All right, welcome back to Fortitude, everybody. Everybody, I am J.W. Wilson, my co-host to my left in our new studio setup is one Brenton Payne. Uh, we're changing things up a bit, but one thing we haven't changed up, Brenton, is Captex Bank, still our primary sponsor and w- people we love very dearly. Would you agree? I totally agree. Thank you for uh, sending us to Dallas for our last recorded episode of the uh, Fan Expo. You know they don't they don't release release them uh, sequentially, so it probably won't match up with your, what you're saying right now. I know, now. but I saw our guest tattoo and talked about the living in the universe okay. unconditionally. I was just trying to put parallels in our universe yes. here. Thank it's you, all string yes. theory. Thank yes. you, Captex <laughs> Bank. Thank you, Captex Bank. One thing, another thing we haven't changed is the the and especially we've improved this one is our guest. We have a yes. really interesting dude here today, who guy who I've known for quite some time. Uh, you're getting to know him a little, little bit more today than I am, but. Marshall Harris, he is a he's a guy. He's about to tell us a story. We're gonna we're gonna tee him up. <laughs> but here's a guy that you want to listen to, guys. He's he's a he's a fascinating story and he's a fascinating artist among other things. But uh, thank you for being here, Marshall. Yeah, we're thanks, Marshall. To have you. Thank you. I'm pleasure to be here and don't believe anything that JW says. All right. <laughs> well, there's some things in here you can't deny. How'd you, let's uh, start this. How'd you guys get to know each other? Probably through through his art. I became yeah. a fan uh, and then I tracked him. Tracked you down. In an effort to be closer to you. Tracking is a politically yes. correct way of stalking. Uh-huh. I stalked it? him. And it's no, legal. I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, when I moved back to town, I was you know, doing my art and wondering where I was going to show it. And uh, I think he contacted my dad first to fin- figure out where I That's was. That's correct. That's correct. And then uh, we had a little powwow and started exhibiting work at Fort Works Art. And that seems like a thousand years ago, right. but it was only maybe seven, eight. And look at us now. Mark. But for, now. but but did J Dub? Did you look at the art first and then realize the TCU connect or like how did or did you know of Marshall from TCU? Because there's TCU deal, right? Well, that yeah. we, we'll, we need to get into that. Let's start okay. at the beginning before we get to that part because that's part of your story, which is fascinating. But before we get to that, you are a the child of a military man, Mr. Marshall Senior, Marshall Harris Senior. He yep. traveled you around as a kid. But ultimately, you wound up in Fort Worth, going to Southwest High School. Right. Where uh, are, are you doing art at all at this at this point in your life? D- oh doing, yeah, drawing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I if you're six six and you know in Texas and you, you're not playing football, you're playing basketball or yeah. you're playing baseball. Yeah. Or you're running track. Yeah. Or you're doing something other than art. But mm-hmm. art was what. What of, kind of stuff were you drawing at that? Comic I just, book I just, guy? Uh, no. Uh, no. I just I. I did anything and everything that sort of caught my interest. Mm-hmm. And I had a super cool art teacher, Betty Smith. Um, and she discovered that if I just let go of the reins, yeah, he'll do stuff. And so, you know, it was, it was ceramics or it was drawing or it was plaster casting or for what it, you know, if they had a, a metal shop, uh, which they actually did that automotive shop back then, I would have done some welding and yeah. stuff. But yeah. So I just, that's kind of what I did when I wasn't being a jock. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, a, and just, just before we get to the art piece of it, a, a jock you were, with, a, with all due respect, you were you were quite good at, at the high school football profession. That led you to the college ranks where when TCU came came a knocking, because of your father's uh, time there, he was he was a TCU Hall of Famer, which you would, you would end up being as well at some point. Went to TCU to play some ball. Yeah, uh, turns out you were pretty good at it, and that led you to the next level, the NFL. Yeah. Um, but during the time at TCU, one of one of the big, powerful points about you, one of the most interesting things that I've always loved about you, is about 1976 ish. Is that about right? In your dorm room, maybe it's 77 or 76. You drew drew a logo called the Flying TCU or the Flying T. That's, I think that was when it was birthed, yes. And you, you submitted this or gave it to Coach F.A. Dry? Well, the, the, the assignment was part of a graphic design class that I was taking, and we were doing, you know, developing logos. And so, you know, you, you, you pick a logo that is really bad and, or, or make up one for a company. And mm-hmm. this was, these were relatively new classes at TCU. So I thought, well, TCU's logo really... They don't really have one. I mean, it's just some letters. And this was way before branding or uh, all the marketing came about. So I mm-hmm. thought, well, I'm, the the mascot is a 
horned frog and maybe I can make that a little more ferocious. So I came up with a, a, a drawing of a horned dragon coming out of this emblem. And then the... Uh, Was that too pagan for that school? Uh, I, thought, I think it might have been too sci-fi-ish at the time. Uh-huh. But it was very Frank Frazetta-ish. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, and the Flying T was developed at the same time, you know, because the, the frog would work on certain things and the Flying T would work on others. Yeah. And uh, somehow the the football department got wind of it and and I think my position coach said, hey, Coach Dry might want to see if you want to, if we can use the logo for our letterhead. And okay, if I say no, does that mean I don't get to play? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? right. And uh, I said, I said, sure, no, you know, I'm fine. It's just uh, something I we designed, and uh, and lo and behold, you know, here we are. How many years later? I, I don't care to count. And the flying T is still percolating. Oh yeah, pirating happening. It's a wonderful it logo. It I is. mean, it is like I copied that thing. In the let the way you did that letter <laughs> across, like like you you bring. I don't it all think together. it's a really great logo in terms of how logos is. go. Well, what I th- what I think it is is the time when we went to school there. It was a touchstone because mm-hmm. you know, I, well, when I went to school there and we played ball there, we were horrible. And I apologize to my my players that were <laughs> played at the same time, but we were not very good. I mean, we was there. I redshirted a year, so I played five seasons. We won two games. And the whole time, and and the rest of the games, we were just beat terrible. You know, sixty four to three. Yeah, seventy. I think I think uh, Texas beat us seventy four to two or something like that. And they they were putting the band members on the field because you know we just couldn't. Our punter had the most yardage of any of the players. He had the because he would anyway. So uh, where was it going with well, that? Were you, were you dominating at that? I mean, is it fair to say you were a, one of the better players on the team? Were you were you a dominant? Well, that's player? a tricky question. I mean, when everybody's bad, right. You know, if you're the least, or it you're, got you to you're the a little NFL. bit better than. Well, I you know I, I joke and I say it's it's statistical probability. <laughs> if you're a defensive player and a defensive lineman, the number of plays that you're on the field will help dictate a percentage of plays that you make. And if your offense can only go one or two plays and then you're back on the field, then you're playing 75, 80% of the game. You get a lot of exposure. You get a lot of exposure. And at that time, the running game was, was you know, mm-hmm. the, the deal, not, you know, passes. There were only three things could happen mm-hmm. and two or were bad. You, when did the Flying T go on the helmet, though? Were you wearing Se- it during uh, your 77? Uh, 77 is when it made its debut on the uniforms. Okay. And uh, I think they phased it out in 90... One or two, was it? Was it twenty one or two? So it lasted a long time, uh, about fifteen years, I think. So Wait, when did you graduate? Seventy nine. Oh, did, so you were did wearing it. Feel, it. Yeah. You were yeah. you proud? Like, as, yeah, as like, a player, you're you're playing with your own design. Is that what does that feel yeah. like? Marshall made this thing, uh, man. I didn't. I didn't think that deeply you then. Okay. No, it was just like. <laughs> Oh, we're going to get our asses kicked again this week. Yeah. <laughs> and it's my logo. Oh, but I've got a logo on my helmet. Yay. Yeah, I'm really cool. Hey, guys, yeah, check out my logo. That's right. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're bad. Yeah. But I got a bad logo. <laughs> it's cool a bad logo. luck logo that that's, Marshall made. That's right. Well, actually, yeah, it was one of the the uh, the reason the, the Flying T, there's lots of myths about why the Flying T hasn't, wasn't revived. Yeah. And one of the was that uh, Gary Patterson was superstitious about it. He said he didn't want to relive those years when we were bad. The hex. And whoever would tell me that, I said, well, you happen to recognize that the years that we were really bad were really foundation years mm-hmm. when people said, we don't want to ever be that bad again. And when Gary took over, the team had started to get better. So yeah. the Flying T was part of his, but it was also, right. I think it was on the, on the uniforms of the Rose Bowl, maybe? I think. I don't I think, know that. I think it may have been. They, I don't know for sure. No, no, it wasn't with us. Did no, they no. ever? Did they ever approach you uh, in an effort to bring it into the TCU fold, the Flying T logo? Well, and that's that's part of the the weird. So I, you know, I left school and I went to the to New England and and was away for thirty years. And in that time, I really didn't pay attention about a whole lot was going on here. And TCU adopted it, and it wound up becoming the mark for the university. It was on, you know, it was painted on the stadium and I painted a logo on the swim pool and it was everywhere. And there was nearly no, there was never any discussions about licensing or copyrights or anything like that. So uh, when I got 
and and through the years, Scott uh, Scott Nix um, was always a big uh, supporter. And you know, well, Marsh, we got to take and figure out how to bring the flying tea back. And so there was a whole bunch of pushback from the school for various reasons. Uh, but when I came back in 2010, uh, I was approached, and uh, I won't name who approached me, but he said, hey, we're going to have lunch because I think the Flying T might have a chance of coming back. So we have lunch, and uh, he and presents this really well-done presentation package. I mean, they put a lot of thought into, in the company that they're working with, a lot of thought into you know how to rebrand yeah. the Flying T. And I said, oh, man, that's awesome. And he said, what we're going to do for you is on the merchandising tag, we're going to tell your story about the flying tee and how it was you know, invented. And that'll be, that, wouldn't that be cool? I said, yeah, that's great. And I said, but you guys have been using the flying tee for you know, 15, 20 years, and I never heard of anybody saying thank you. Or So this go around, because I know it's going to be on all sorts of merchandise, and yeah. this is a really well-thought-out strategic selling package. Might be a little something, you know, a little love on this way. <laughs> Radio silence. Out. We're buying your lunch for you, son. Yeah, that's right. We're going to put your name on the on the <laughs> marketing tag. And so over the years, I've tried to figure out how to take and, and make it happen. But this year actually is going to be some interesting uh, developments. I don't know if you guys know the Flying Tea Club. We do. Yeah. Okay. They're a sponsor of one of our other shows for okay. us today. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the guys at the Flying Tea Club contacted me last year when I was in Europe. And they said, "Hey, we, you know, have the, now with the NIL uh, developments, and uh, you know, we want to take and put together a, a not-for-profit venture that helps some of these athletes because the ones that you know that can make bank on their brand, yeah, they're playing right next to you know some kid who you know, you know, his his mom, single mom, or you know, they they're they're barely they're struggling mm-hmm, to right. be able to." To come to TCU, and uh, he said this will be an opportunity for us to help uh, one those players, and then two compete competitively in the the recruiting area. Right. And I said, well, if there's anything I can do, and I said, well, the thing you can do is let us use the flying T. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm all fine with it. I said, but TCU might get their knickers in a bunch. Mm. And uh, but I had a meeting with uh, Jeremiah Donati. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they've been given the flying tea has been given the go ahead, as long as they're not selling this stuff, and as long as the the money made is going back into the school. Because I told the flying tea guys, I said I don't have any money. I'm a, I'm an artist. I don't you know I can't donate anything, but I can give you the rights to use the flying tea and mm-hmm. all that. That's the way I can give back to the right. school. It's like it sounds like a record company deal. The artist who makes the record has to ask permission of the distribution company. If yeah. somebody else down the road wants to use it, right, right, and uh, what was that thing about the universe and conditions in that? You trust the universe unconditionally. <laughs> it it always gives you the answer that you you deserve or that is uh, is the best <laughs> for you. It may not be in the fashion that you want. Yeah. So, in the long run, I now have there's now two people or two organizations that are interested in using the flying T in a way to give back to the university. And uh, so TCU may bring back the flying T as part of a mm-hmm. a uh, historic brand um, through retro, and their their um, what's it called? Not a locker. Anyway, the the vault, the vault mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. So, and because it's TCU's 150th anniversary, they thought, yeah. what a great way to take and, and uh, revive all the logos and all of that kind of stuff and make it available for a short window. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, yeah. it does. It pops up all the time. You can't go to a game anywhere and not without seeing somebody's shirt or hat. They've pirated or made their own stuff. <laughs> yeah, and TCU. I know they don't. They're they're working on that out. We hope they do because yeah. it's a it's a beloved uh, iconic uh, logo and it came from your hand. So that's a very wow. cool story. Thank you for sharing. Sure. And it lasted for a long time, like you said. But back to you, Marshall. You you were so bad at TCU that you got drafted in the eighth round to go to the pros. <laughs> Uh, making fun. You were actually well, yeah, yes. again. If you, if you have some un, unreasonable number of tackles as a defensive lineman, because you're on the field the whole time, right. you know, you want to draft me? Okay, yep. fine. So, but I, when I got drafted, I had no. I mean, after the last game, I had no intentions of of ever playing football again. I mean, I'm you know I'm going to be a graphic designer, mm-hmm. and so when I got a call from the, the New York Jets office on draft day and they said congratulations you've been drafted by the new york jets I went, damn it yeah it's like, yeah 
okay. We only won okay. two games, you realize. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, but I, the, the caveat is I got drafted. Um, I was number eighth in the draft, and they drafted Marty Lyons and Mark Gastineau as number one and two. So I came into camp vying for the same position that two really amazing defensive linemen right. were vying for. So I didn't wind up staying with the Jets. I wound up getting picked up by the Browns the following year. And you had a decent NFL career. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're satisfied with the way it turned out? And just oh, com- oh compared to playing at TCU? In terms, <laughs> we actually won some games yes. and people, you know, didn't throw things at you right. at the grocery yes. store? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was, I mean, nobody threw anything at me at TCU um, other than insults. But, uh, yeah, so the first year I was with Cleveland, uh, I was part of the Cardiac Kids team, and we uh, nice. almost went to the playoffs had this, you know, crazy ice bowl thing. And, and there's legend made of, of the, the cardiac kids that I was a part of. I roomed with uh, Lyle Alzado on the road. Wow. Oh, wow. And so that was pretty true. And I went out and trained with him during the summers. So it was, the Browns years were, were interesting. The, the year I went to uh, New England, it was one of those, I, you know, had no, I don't care if I play, you know, mm-hmm. I got picked up and yeah. I'll do my best. So I wound up, playing there and my and then my agent called me about the middle of the season he said hey you know there's this thing called the usfl happening and they're giving guaranteed contracts and i said well what does that mean he says well you sign a contract which is and it's binding on the team so if you get hurt or they cut you or anything they still have they're obligated for the contract i said is there anything like that in the nfl he said nah nothing i said well let's investigate it so i wound up uh, signing a contract the day before Thanksgiving with the New Jersey Generals. Mm-hmm. And the day after Thanksgiving, I was asked to bring my playbook to see Ron Myers, who's the head coach at the, with the New England Patriots. So they did not, the NFL did not see the transition to a new league, and, <laughs> and it was not in their good graces. But we wound up playing with Herschel Walker and Brian Seid. Well, Brian was with me with the, the, with the Browns, or I was with him. And uh, the rest is history. I retired in 85 or 86. Were you drawing or doing stuff creatively all along? That just stops when you're playing? Well, uh, when I was playing, uh, it was was about the game. It was about being a ball player. It was about working out. It was, you know, just being a knucklehead. Yeah. And spending every penny I had. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I, well, when I was with the Browns, I take that back. When I was with the Browns, I um, interned at a couple of the local ad agencies because I had a degree in commercial art and they mm-hmm. said, well, Hey, it'd be great uh, PR for us to have a Cleveland Brown as an art director. Mm-hmm. So I got in to my beginning profession right as, before I actually retired from football. And so that was one of the only smart maneuvers that I right. sort of made when I was, was playing. And then after I retired, transitioned into advertising and marketing. Right. Yeah. Before we get to that piece uh, real quickly, w- People know the name Lyle Elzado. What was who was Lyle Elzado to you? If you mind describing your Lyle Elzado was like a, a lost brother to me, uh, and he uh, Lyle his persona it was it was very Hollywood. I mean, he was big and you know I've never seen a man throw things as easily as he did. Super super strong and a tremendous motivated ferocious competitor. Uh, but in life, he had the same sort of foibles that all of us had, you know. And uh, he was he was a great my my rookie year. I, I roomed with him, and um, and then after the season was over, he says, "Hey, Marsh, I want you to come out and train with me during the summer. I've got a guest house you can stay. I live in Brentwood, and uh, we'll just work out." And I went out there and lived for for three months. And we'd get up in the morning and go to Gold's and work out for two and a half hours. And then we'd go eat breakfast and then we'd go do yoga. And then we'd go run this, the concrete mountain. And then we'd go back in the afternoon and work out for another two and a half hours. Jeez. It was, and I, I went from 255 to 295 with a 6% body fat. Jeez. Unreal. I came back and they just went, oh, what happened? All protein <laughs> shakes, nothing else synthetic going in there? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you know the story of Lyle Alzado, yeah. if, uh, if one vitamin C is good, I'm going to take 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, you know, actually the, the world of competitive athletics, you do what you 
you need to to stay competitive because mm-hmm. if you don't, there are a hundred people waiting to take and step right into your position. Yeah. And so at the time, people frowned upon it. But when I came back at two ninety five, the Brown said, "We think we know what you've been doing. We just want to make sure that you're healthy. We want to take and do blood count work on you each week." And uh, so they didn't say don't do it, but they you know uh, wanted to make sure that it didn't affect your health. Yeah. But um, anyway, that's incredible. So moving along to your advertising period of your life after football uh, obviously you're doing things that are creative and artistic and that that period of your life led you to it to obviously to where we are today and where you've been for a while with your with your artistic ability which is significant Uh, I think uh, maybe this is a bold statement but your graphic drawings is where where I got to know you where I think you stand out uh, you're 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 a giant among mentally and physically and everything you are bigger than most in that world. The, the graphic design you do, I believe you to be one of the, one of the greatest that I've seen, and I've well. seen a lot. <laughs> you, your, your, your humble nature suggests otherwise, but you're, you're, you're a fantastic artist well, in the graphite you. world, Marshall. Thank so uh, when did you realize that you had a talent to make this a, a career? Or well, have you yet? When I found out that I didn't want to do whatever else I was been doing, I had to figure out what I didn't want to do before I could figure out what I did want to do. Yeah. And that took me almost... Mm-hmm. It was my mid fifties? So is I, that when you went to Pennsylvania then and got the? Was there a degree that you got? There? Yeah, I went. I went a back to art? school. Well, I uh, worked in the advertising business. Uh, I worked in New York when I left the Jets. I, oh, wow. I worked there for six months before I came back to um, uh, Texas to train for um, for the Browns. But anyway, uh, so I've always been creatively involved. But when you're in advertising and marketing, you're, you're using your ideas for somebody else and you're creating, you know, marketing campaigns or advertisements or television commercials or eventually I was doing um, uh, museum interactives and educational programs and stuff like that. So you're always using your creative juices for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you know the story about being in, in New York on 9-11. Yeah, I was about to ask mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So I was uh, setting up a trade show for one of my clients and uh, on 9-11, and I, uh, uh, that morning, I, had, I blew, flew in the night before and had plans on having breakfast at the top of the world uh, the next morning. Mm. And, but you have to be on the showroom floor about 8.30 when things really start getting busy. So I decided, well, I'll walk down to the Javits Center from my hotel. It was a beautiful morning. I walked down, and, uh, and we got started, and there's fork trucks driving all over the place, construction people, electricians. It's just crazy. Mm. And the next day was when the trade show was going to open. So we had to get the booth up. And uh, and about, I guess it was about 8.30, 8.40, everything got really, really eerily quiet. And the, the fork trucks weren't driving around. And I went over to the, the uh, stage where all the, the workers are distributed from, and the guy was saying there's something happened at the trade center. We don't know what it is. But we've been told by the federal government to take in pack up what you can carry and leave the building. And so when I walked out of the Javits Center, you can see the towers from the front of the Javits Center, and one of them wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to the lady next to me. I said, what happened to the other tower? And she said it just fell down. Oh, wow. What, what transpired next for you? I said it fell down. And she said, yeah, something really, really bad happened. And it was that day I went to Central Park and spent a lot of time just sort of reflecting. Wow, that's, this is all going on? Yeah. And what's weird is the people in Central Park are having picnics and playing Frisbee and all sorts of stuff because they've re- they live in a city that terrible things happen every day. And there's yeah. nothing they can do about it. So they're just, you know, they're carrying on with their lives. It, it's, it's, it's incredible how it impacted the city after that. It took right. me three days to get out. But in those three days, I decided, well, that's what I was doing was not making me happy yeah and so i need to do something else and it took me another couple of years to figure out i was going to go back to school mm-hmm. and that's when i wound up at the university of the arts uh pursuing a master's degree in sculpture and um somewhere along there i figured out that uh making flat art is a lot easier than making <laughs> physical big pieces of sculpture and that's when i started drawing when did you come back to fort worth 2010 10 okay so you're making art, you're doing all these things we mentioned prior to this. Uh, you won a big prize in 2013, the hunting prize. That yeah. kind of, 
I don't know if it puts you on the map already because I, my opinion is that you're already on the map, but that obviously catapulted you. Well, into it's not a, bad. It's not a bad thing to put on thing. your resume if for you know the art world. Uh, at least people in Texas knew what it was about mm -hmm. because it was a prize. <clears throat> the Hunting Corporation is a big uh, oil and gas. Well, you, you probably know them because they make all sorts of machinery and I, they do all sorts of things. Right. Anyway, they have this this art prize that they had hosted, and uh, they you have to be a Texas artist. And you can only enter one piece. And then they have a curatorial team of renowned experts come in and judge it. And they pick one piece to win the prize. And, uh, you know, I'm new to Texas and I'm drawing these things, these Western saddles, because what I was drawing before was naked people. And I figured <laughs> maybe saddles might be a little more marketable. And <laughs> so I entered one of the saddles and it won. And it, did you have multiple ones? Did you have to choose which one you were going to submit? No, at the time, at the time, I had only drawn one saddle. Oh, and no that, kidding! And yeah. That was Roundup. Yeah, one that, that was the very the first one. one. Yeah, and uh, and it it made me really happy because it was like, oh, okay, maybe there's and and the hunting corporation purchased it for their their corporate uh, collection. Right. So not only did I win the prize, but I also sold the piece. Yeah. And so I thought, well, maybe these saddles are marketable, and so that's really become the bread and butter of my practice. How'd you get into drawing the saddles? When I first moved back here, I, of course, I you have a thesis project in, in uh, university, and, uh, and I had decided I was going to draw life-size human figures and replicate every detail. So if you had a scar or a bruise, that would show up in the drawings. And uh, so I finished my thesis. When I moved back to Fort Worth, um, I looked around, and it, Fort Worth has changed, but it's not as progressive as Philadelphia or, you know, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. or, you know, so I thought maybe I need to draw something that's a little more kind of in the Fort Worth. And I w went to this, this the, um, the Cutting Horse exhibition and went to the trade show. And they've got, you know, these big, huge trailers and they've got all yeah. sorts of horse tack and, you know, everything you can think about, about, you know, raising horses and these really beautifully create crafted saddles. And I looked at one and I went, Maybe that's it. Each one of those has got a, a, des, a design, a specific use. It's got it's like a functional piece of art. So maybe I'll draw one of those. And uh, I was in a Teskey's uh, had a retail store down on West Seventh at the time, and Michael Teskey was the owner. Um, their their main gigs out in Weatherford, mm -hmm. and he probably has three hundred saddles that are all everything from just a beat up working saddle to an amazing show saddle that people have given him because they don't have anything to do with them. And so that was that round that roundup is where I found that was in uh, one of his retail stores. So I contacted him and said, hey, I'd like to photograph it and draw it. And that's how it happened. So mm -hmm. You know, and uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you're, you're not, in, you've done many, many saddles now, and they, they're in collections all over the place in some really high-profile pro, high collections. But you're not just a saddle guy. We've talked before over the years. That's not just all you do, and you don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't believe as being the saddle guy. No, unfortunately, that's part part of the part of the uh, th how things work. But y you've done so many other things with your art that I've seen. Uh, the toe tag, uh, yeah. Ex yeah. Uh, exhibit was fantastic, and some of your skulls and some of your new more but modern pieces. But too. that's 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 uh, a little confusing for the art world because the art world likes to take and pigeonhole you yes. and figure out you know where you fit, <clears throat> and because I do. Um, utilize the I say the medium dictates uh, or the idea dictates the medium and so I may come up with an idea that it's just not practical to draw it it means it needs to be a three-dimensional piece or a video right. or you know something and so I'll create the the saddles have become the uh, the known bread and butter um, and you know, sort of the 75 percent of the practice right and the other stuff that I do is me going to recess and, uh, and so I, I show it uh, with the anticipation that some of it might sell and some of it I might just own forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I've been very, very fortunate and through uh, associations and, you know, with JW and, and Lauren and uh, the guys at Cufflink now and some people in, you know, other cities, um, I finally found something that I really enjoy doing mm -hmm. and can see doing it till I can't do it anymore. So every article I've read says that you do in your drawings pick out the imperfections and things. So is mm -hmm. there a, is there a theme? Is there something subliminal in that? You know, something that you're trying to purvey with that? And do saddles? You know, some of those saddles are so like 
beautiful in the yeah. way they've done. Do they have imperfections too? So the kind of like two part question. Uh, so yes. So the answer is uh, yes. The imperfections or the design tell you a lot about who the saddle was made for, what use they used it for. Uh, J.P. Bryan, who's a um, guy down in, in, he's out of Houston. He's a, he's a financial guy out of Houston. And he's also the, the Texas number one historian. He's got a, a museum. He wound up moving his, his offices to Galveston. Well, he shut his he closed his offices down and moved his collection from in his office, like kind of like this, to uh, a building that they purchased. And he's probably got 300 saddles. And I had a great meeting with him. And he said, if, if you become a, uh, proficient at reading the saddle, looking at the wear on the saddle, mm -hmm. looking how it's designed. You can tell who who used it, what work they did, uh, and where they were. So if the the cantle of the back of the saddle is high and rounded, chances are they working in high planes so that when you're going up a hill, they don't slide out of the back. Mm -hmm. If it's flat and low, they're probably doing roping work, and the, mm -hmm. you know, and and bulldoggers want to take and be able to slip out of the saddle really easy. Um, and all of those the the show saddles that are designed and each one is a, as a masterpiece work of art that actually is functional. And, uh, so that's, that's the, the history. And there's a, there's a Japanese term called wabasabi and it, it, it speaks of the character that an object gains with use. So something that's brand new, it's, it's brand new. It has yeah. no character to it, but if yeah. it's been in the family for several generations and the teacup is cracked and we're going to take and fix that crack with gold inlay, those all those imperfections tell a story, and so those are the the things that I look for really in all my works is those underlying things that our lives are so hurried that we blow by those those uh, details, and so my underlying hopes are that no matter what I do, art wise, it slows you down enough to take a look at it and notice one of those imperfections mm -hmm. and go, why did he draw that? You know what what's the importance of that scratch in the leather on that fender of this you know this saddle where did that come from so good yeah what i asked that but most people would be like why would he draw that it just mm -hmm. he should just make it saddle. perfect yeah, yeah. or right. you know like why would he why would he add that like, well that's the beauty behind perfect, being an yeah. artist is we are yeah. visual editors so yeah. we can add or subtract what we believe to be uh more important for the presentation or the story that we're yeah. telling. yeah what are you working on today Currently. I've got another. I've got a saddle that is um, the owner is uh, lives up in Bend, Oregon, and it's his grandfather's saddle. It's called Grandpa's Ride, nice. and his grandfather is a first generation Italian who moved to Houston and started raising Brahma bulls, and became very very successful at it. And this was his grandfather's working saddle. So it's nothing. Uh, has, has almost no silver work on it. It's very, you know, it's a used saddle, but the uh, patina and the wear markings and uh, all that sort of stuff is what's challenging in drawing. Nice. Where do you, do you go on these hunts for these saddles with stories? Like, is that part of your... Uh, kind of, yeah. I, I mean, I've got a, uh, the next series of saddles that I'm doing, uh, I'm focusing on historic uh, figures throughout Western and Mexican history and, and Native American history. And so I uh, just photo went up to um, the Wool Rock Reserve that's uh, it's up in Oklahoma where um, they have a, a Buffalo Bill saddle. They've got a whole bunch of stuff, but what I was interested in is this Buffalo Bill saddle. Uh, they've got one from Teddy Roosevelt and a whole bunch of other ones. But uh, the figures I'm looking at is uh, two Hollywood figures, somebody like Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, uh, somebody in, in uh, uh, black cowboy culture, uh, two women, either as part of the true Western pioneering or, you know, somewhere uh, in that. And then uh, uh, First Americans I'm looking for. Uh, and it's very difficult to find artifacts for our First Americans mm -hmm. because they were so utilitarian, not too many things exist anymore. But, the originals, yeah. yes. Can you ride a horse? Oh, yeah. Is there a horse uh, small enough for you to, or big enough, excuse me, for you to? It's called a Bercheron. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's like a Clydesdale, <laughs> yeah, but bigger. Yeah, and uh, yeah, one of my uh, one of my ex wives told me I could get you a horse, but it's going to be a Clydesdale. <laughs> well, on that note, I mean, your hands are huge. 
do you use one of those little um, expanders on the pencil? Like, I mean, I got to think. That you would pencil, you would giggle if you saw me drawing because it's like the grip is. Well, I use I use a, an extension on the pencils, but that's just because if you're drawing way over there and you're drawing with the ten, tip of the pencil, you got to get your arm way over there, and yeah. this allows me some extension because my drawings are always quite large. And I can only reach so far. I work on a flat surface. I need to figure out how to take and work on a vertical surface. But, uh, um, but I use uh, mechanical pencils. Mm-hmm. Um, the work is is. I mean, I have a jeweler's loop that I use. Oh, it looks for, like a mad scientist. I've seen you before. Yeah, it's a, it's and, a really uh, cool contraption. I got well. It's basically a you know magnifier that you put on, and if you're working on watches or you're working on jewelry, yeah. it gets you right up there. But when I'm replicating stitch work on a on a saddle, I mean these things are you know like an eighth inch long, and I want to draw them so they're accurate. Yeah, so, but well, I mean, is it like are you on a fibrous paper? Yeah, the paper is called mylar, and okay. it's, so it's a synthetic paper. Yeah, and it it resembles uh, vellum or like a really thick tissue paper, so mm-hmm. it's kind of translucent. Oh yeah. Um, but because it's a synthetic paper, the graphite just floats around on the top, mm-hmm. and you can literally paint with it. So uh, I've had some discussions with people about, you know, the word drawer is kind of awkward. So would I, can I be a, a, like a graphite painter? And yeah. Technically, I, I am literally, because I'm uh, moving the pigment, the pigment, although it's dry. I'm, is there just like a smudge factor, though, with moisture and stuff then? Uh, well, you're asking some good questions. Sorry, I, like you get, I'm in the zone yeah, the, with you. Uh, the, That's what you do when you don't have a script, Marshall. Yeah, you ask yeah, it, just, yeah, yes. I'm free. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the great thing about Mylar is uh, you, I can create uh, photo-like qualities. And so people will argue with me that my drawings are photos. And I'll say, no, here, look around the back. You can see the pencil work. But from the front, it all blends or you don't see any pencil lines. And again, but that's because I take Q-tips and I make all the pencil lines go away. Yeah. And that's the beauty behind Mylar is because it doesn't have a fiber. It doesn't grab onto the graphite. The only problem is it'll pick up a fingerprint like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. And I learned this uh, in doing one of the nudes that I was working on before I came down to Texas. And, uh, and it was a life-size uh, female uh, frontal pose. And I'm working on her, th- her thigh. And, and literally the graphite is like, you know, almost not there. Yeah. And so I'm the cotton ball, I'm rubbing the, you know, smoothing it all out. And there's a handprint on her thigh. <laughs> and once you get oil on this mylar, you can't get it off. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, you can erase it and stuff, but the, mm-hmm. my, it, 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 it changes the, the characteristics of the surface. So I had, obviously leaned onto the the surface with my bare hand and it picked up the hand oils yeah so i never do that again nice so all right so all this all this stuff you're doing is wonderful and everybody who knows you appreciates you do but you have just <laughs> just recently done something even not not better but completely out of your wheelhouse you did an artist residency in over in paris in france yeah last just last year right last fall i believe yep. yep uh this there's been stories written about this i've read many of them i've talked to you about this you've given artist talks about this you've done some cool stuff we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about this and the experience that you guys had okay. you went with your, your current wife june naylor harris who right. we love writer for the star telegram she's lovely uh great job there by the way great pick uh, I'm the beneficiary of that yeah. <laughs> that that union. So tell us about this artist residency, please. So you'd asked earlier about this tattoo, trust the universe unconditionally. And yeah. this, is, this is a great example of you may not be know where you're going, but if you're making excellent time, you're still heading the right direction. And, and that that's white. Like show the camera because well, you can't, you can't see it because I'm 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 tragically untanned this year. But when you tan, that thing it shows pops. it shows up. Yeah. yeah. And and I had it done in white because my mom really doesn't like tattoos. And yeah, so good idea. She frowns upon anyway, so <laughs> um so I'm working at Fort Works Art and Lauren has been gracious enough to take and give me a studio space as part of her Gallery of Dreams project. It's a five oh one C three uh thing. And so she said, Well how would you like to work at the gallery? I said, Okay, that'd be great. So I had this studio space and it wasn't secured, so I couldn't lock it when they had an event or they had a, an opening. And so uh, I'd always have to go up and do a dog and pony show. And this particular time, it was one of these that I was in a particularly foul mood, and I didn't want to do it. Mm. And I went up there anyway, and uh, um, 
uh, Jovi Roden, who's a, a friend of, became a friend of mine. She's a collector. She has some of my work. Came in and brought some of her friends. And one guy was named Monty Laster. And Monty sounds just like anybody from Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a home out in Santo. And that's where he met Jovi. Uh, but he also lives in, in Paris. And he's lived in Paris since he was 19, on and off. Um, and you know that he's Parisian when he breaks into fluent French. And so I was introduced to Monty. And over the next six months, we had a number of discussions. And uh, Monty explained to me about he's a, he's a very successful interior designer. Uh, we didn't find that out until much, much later. After we were over in Europe, we found that out. But his passion is doing what's called a social engagement process. There's another word for it, but it basically means he puts people together that you wouldn't think would go together, mm-hmm. and they do a project. And the, he explains that the art is what happens between the people. And he said, I'd like to bring you over and have you do a residency. Because early in our conversations, I told him, I said, you know, I think what you do is really cool. And so if you ever need, uh, you know, like an assistant or something, if you got some heavy rocks to move or something, I'll come over and I'll, I'll hang out, you know. And, yeah. and, and so he, he put this project together. And the way things happen over there is you come up with a, a project, you pitch it to the different organizations that are going to be involved, and they fund it. So uh, he asked me, he said, I have this idea I want to take and bring you over for three months. Do you think you'd be interested in that? I said, well, give me a minute. Yeah, of course I would. Yeah. So uh, we go, I, and I talked to him, I said, you know, June is a, is a great journalist, and I think this this warrants the story being documented. And so I, I brought her along, and so we lived on the outskirts of Paris in a, uh, an area called uh, Saint-Denis, and we worked with two middle school classes. One was a uh, French students learning English, and another was a PE class. And then I worked with the American Rules Football Club called The Flash, which they, te- they, they coach American Rules Football there. So I was working with two middle school classes, and this uh, it was the kids were probably 13, no, 16, 19 years old, this uh, football program. And, and I don't speak French. So there was this language hurdle that had to be, but Monty said, don't worry about it. It'll, it'll, it'll all work out. And so most of the time I had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we, I, we, the umbrella theme was resilience. And so working and talking to the kids about what resilience means and COVID. Because the world over there is just like the world over here. They had to learn remotely. Yeah. Uh, the project actually got postponed for, for six months because when we were originally supposed to go over there was the spring. And they had a, a big, I mean, they were locked down. You couldn't mm-hmm. leave your home locked down. Yeah. And uh, so the numbers came down enough that we went ahead and had the project and we got this little sweet window that uh, we came over, but we had to be fully vaxxed. Nobody messed around with with masks. You basically just put them on anywhere you went. And we spent three of probably the most uh, informative and um, life-changing months of both June's and my my life and and working with people from another lots of different worlds uh, where languages were all over the place. Mm -hmm. And we felt as embraced as we do here in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. It was just an amazing, amazing experience. Coming back home, though, you guys experienced, uh, you had a break from this reality to that reality. Come back home, I think you've spoken about this, but it kind of makes you hypersensitive to the things we do here that are so vastly different there and vice versa. Yeah. The issues we take for granted. Well, I think that... Our primary takeaway was everything that you hear about Europeans, unless you go to Europe, don't believe it. Because we have all been told, well, the French are rude. And they're not rude. They're just indignant to rude Americans. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't go over and, and at least attempt to practice civility and um, um, manners, yeah. Everywhere you go, you walk into a store. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Mm-hmm. Uh, leave. Bonsoir. That's just customary that, that initiates conversations. What did he just, oh, you, what did he you would have to take your head out of your phone to do that, though. Would you have to look up from well, that? Well, so, you know, not to belabor those, when you are in a place for that long, 
And that's specifically what I told Monty. I said, I want to be a, in a place that I'm no longer a tourist. I want to become part of the, the, mm-hmm. the community fabric. And he put us in a place that we were that. We were outside of Paris, so we were not Parisians. We were other. And other is, uh, they're from Turkey, from Pakistan, from South and North America, uh, Africa. They're Mediterranean. There are a million languages spoken. If, if you hear French, it's a second language. And every one of these people was from somewhere else. And we were embraced like we belonged. Mm-hmm. I don't know of many places in America, if you walk in and you look different or speak differently, that you're not treated differently. Mm-hmm. And because Europe is a place, is um, it operates differently. And maybe because we were insulated, we didn't understand the language. And so maybe they were having the same discussions, but because we were in French, we didn't hear it. But we were insulated from all of the the political banter, all of the media, all of the stuff that we're bombarded with every day. And, um, and well, there's this human factor to that, right? Just like looking at somebody in their eyes and I mean, we're not, we're just listening to you, but you can tell we're listening to you. There's yeah. something that exists there. Right. That's not language dependent, you know, that, that is just, it's a human thing in, in my opinion. Um, we function differently in the States. And mm-hmm. it's, it's only apparent when you get out of the States and you see just how differently we function. And I'm not passing judgment on it's good or bad. But what we did understand is in Paris, uh, in France, and in other countries, we, weren't, we, we visited uh, Belgium, Europeans, they work to live. They don't live to work. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Work is looked at as what you have to do to take a making a living, and uh, but life is what you're there to enjoy. So conversations are like this: you you don't turn on the TV and Netflix all the time. We watched very little television while we were there. We read, and what we we went to tons of museums. It was all there were so many things there that were just culturally available right. that you have to you know get a ticket for here. Did you create anything while you were there? I, I, I did a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the energy, usually a, an artist's residence, you go and you do your work. And I was mm-hmm. given a studio space that was in a 100-year-old mill. It was super cool. Uh, when I say it, when I say cool, it's like you were put in, in uh, old world France in this kind of mill that overlooked a garden. And you'd had to see it to understand the coolness part of it because other people would go, well, that's kind of, that's beyond rustic. Mm-hmm. But that's where the studio was. But because it was working with all these different entities, most of my week was spent putting together presentations or uh, working with the football team. The coach, it was the first time he had coached contact football at this level. He had coached flag football for four years before. Coach Olivier spoke no English. There were a couple of kids on the defensive line, which I was helping, that understood enough English they could translate. Oh, wow. So I was there as an assistant coach with Coach Olivier coaching up these kids in defensive line techniques. Mm-hmm. And he was as much of a rookie as I was. Yeah. So he came in with no, you know, skill stuff. And between the beginning and when I we ended, I, I worked up we worked up through emails and Deepl, a translation app. I gave him a a, um, a skills drill packet of twenty two drills 11 for uh, running play situations, 11 for pass play situations. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was a, it was a circling back that I'd never figured out how my art and athletics would reconnect, but Monty made that happen. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can't express to the folks that I worked with over there just how, how deeply it impacted me on a level of, gee, I don't know how these things are ever going to take and, and reconnect. Right. But... You tag any buildings with the flying T over there? I was like, did you help? Them, <laughs> did you help with their logo? Um, maybe you. No, that. I mean they. They are. Uh, you need to look up the Flash in Lockarnouf. Okay. The the professional team. People don't know this, but American rules football is second to soccer in Europe. Like uh, cricket in in. But right. there are two hundred and thirty teams that are spread all over Europe. Every one of them's just got a badass name, and this organization was the one that began it all. And Bruno is the general manager. And when he was about his, about graduating from college or getting ready to graduate from college, he came to the States. This was 40 years ago. Right. And he saw this thing called American football. 
and he and his buddy were over here and he said, wouldn't it be great if we could do this in France? Mm -hmm. So they got a sponsor to give them enough money to buy uh, 11 helmets and, and 11 shoulder pads. And they came back over to La Carneuve, which is a really, um, they, it's a no-go zone. So unless you live there, you don't go there. But because they started this organization, uh, it now offers all sorts of outreach programs, educational programs on drugs, on, on uh, kids being bullied in schools. They teach so soccer, tennis, yeah. badminton, all sorts mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. Anyway. Did you and June ever have the discussion, why, what are we doing here? Let's go back to Paris. Did that ever come up? Uh, about every morning. Yeah. No. <laughs> we, we should go back. <clears throat> Well, there, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 66 years old and I'm, you know, I can, I can draw and paint anywhere I want to. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I have to be in Fort Worth. Um, but yeah, we've had discussions about the, 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 the things that we appreciated. We put in easily 10,000, 15,000 steps a day oh, because, wow. because mass transit there is uh, subways or trams or buses or you walk a lot. And, you know, we come back to the States and we want to do as much walking as we did. And, and well, what are we going to do? Drive and park a mile and a half away from Tom's Thumb and go get our groceries and walk back? You know, that's yeah. just, that's how you had to do it. But the climate here. Yes. Well, you can't, when it's 106 degrees, how <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll spontaneously human combust walking from Tom Thumb with my Talk ice cream to the moisture on the mylar there, yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so those are the, some of the things we'd like to figure out how to replicate here if we can. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the discussions of, uh, South of France, Portugal, somewhere yeah. like that might be in our future. Well, Marshall, we have appreciated your time here. The last question we ask our guests every, every time we have something somebody significant and you fill in that category. Well, uh, besides marriage and children, what is the best day of your whole life? If you could pick one today, today oh, man. i don't love know if it. i believe you love but uh is there an, is there another one besides today uh, <laughs> no because uh if you if you look at a day that could be the shittiest day of your life you're learning something on that day mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me and so to take and pick out you know the birth of my children you know, super day the uh, the, the waking up in the morning and just realizing you've got another day of breath and something to do with it should be the best day. And that was probably the, the takeaway lesson of 9-11 is I was supposed to have breakfast on the top of a tower that got run into by a plane that morning. And if something hadn't happened and yeah. I had not been there, uh, it was a really crappy day, but it, take, it took and changed the trajectory of my life. And so the best day of your life is the current day that you're living. You should make it that way. Yes, sir. Awesome answer. Where can people find your work? Um, Instagram, uh, Marshall K. Harris Art, uh, Facebook. I'm, I'm showing at Cufflink um, here in Fort Worth. Uh, just Google me up. Awesome. Marshall Harris, thank, thank you, man. You, we love you. Great job. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Captex Bank. We love you too, buddy. Thanks, Mike. Fort Worth. Fort Worth.